research you produce is only as good as the way you communicate it. Scientist Studio is an exciting science communication company that brings your research to life through a variety of services. From as little as £59, a summary of your work can be narrated, illustrated and animated, leaving you with an engaging video to share with the world. If that wasn't enough, as a podcast listener, you can get 10% off any Scientist Studio service using the code PODCAST when you order. Simply head to our website or find us on Twitter to get started. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Scientist Podcast. It's a great pleasure to be able to introduce my guest today. She's a PhD candidate in biochemistry, host of the Grad Chat Podcast, and a huge advocate of mental health in the sciences. She also manages an extremely popular Twitter feed where she talks about all of the above. It's my great pleasure to introduce Faye Lin. Faye, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to chat today. Yeah, there's lots I want to talk about. Your research itself, systematic barriers in academia, and the Grad Chat podcast. But first, I want to talk a little bit about mental health in academia. You've been vocal online about academia being an environment with almost unique pressures and have written that grad school has a constant feeling of, and I'm quoting here, I'm not doing enough, I'm not good enough, I don't belong here. What, in your view, are the main structural reasons for academia's, say, traditionally inadequate level of support for those who, like all of us, will occasionally run into mental health difficulties? All right, so systemic issues in academia is something that, for me personally, took some time in grad school to figure out what they were or that they even existed. So I'm currently a fifth year PhD candidate in biochemistry at UCLA. And I would say that when you enter grad school, it's a lot of learning curve as far as what is research? What is a PhD? What is this new environment? And you get a lot of cues from the environment around you, whether that's PIs you look up to giving you feedback about your research and your performance or your peers telling you also like their achievements and maybe their feedback on your research. It's you're thrown into this environment and it's all new and you you understandably are going to take this feedback from your environment. So I started Twitter around a year ago because that was when I started to realize some of the systemic issues about this environment in academia. So if I were to list a couple of them, one would be a big power dynamic between students and advisors. So I mentioned that one big feedback I get when I entered grad school was understandably the feedback from these mentors and professors that are going to guide me through grad school. And when you're a new grad student, you feel that their experience and their developed level of expertise is very trustworthy. But it took some time to realize that given this power dynamic, what you end up having are advisors who potentially may treat people poorly. And this, you mentioned this quote I gave of, you know, I felt like I'm not doing enough. I feel like I'm don't belong here. And a lot of it came from this systemic structure where these advisors are supposed to act in mentor roles, but there's no accountability for them to do well in these mentor roles. So what ended up happening would I would hear from my various 
either my personal ex- encounters or friend encounter or pe- my friends telling me their experiences, maybe mentors saying you don't belong in science or things like even blatant and another issue is blatant discrimination on the basis of various aspects of your identity or saying for me as a woman, I would hear people say, you know, women don't belong in this space, right? And you couple that with power dynamic, with lack of accountability, and just what happens is that this behavior goes just unaccounted for with no consequence. And then as the student at the lower end of the power dynamic, you feel like, well, they're an all-knowing professor saying I don't belong here. Maybe that's true because they have more expertise and you go down that thought path. It's that when in reality, it's not that any of us don't belong here. It's that we don't have the support and the system isn't set up to provide that support or hold people accountable for poor behavior. That's really interesting. If you wouldn't mind, I'd like to take those one by one. In terms of the power dynamic, is that the power dynamic between a professor or senior advisor and the researcher? Yeah, so that is definitely the one that I'm thinking of. So it could be a PI and their lab members. So for me, I'm a grad student and you could also say for for postdocs, undergraduates, people under the PI. And what characterizes that power dynamic? So as far as um, going back to these systemic issues of academia, there is this huge power dynamic because In other work environments, you might have something like a human resources department where there is this third party that you go to if there are issues with coworkers or a boss. And there really isn't a counterpart to that in academia. I mean, there are certain options that people will throw out. For example, as a grad student, I have a faculty committee and that's composed of my advisor and various other faculty members that can help advise my research. So one resource people also point to are your committee members, for example. And one approach is to ask other faculty members, they may be on your committee to help leverage some of those interactions. At the same time, this system also isn't as foolproof because then you run into issues of maybe potential faculty members don't want to get on each other's bad side. And there's all kinds of politics that go involved in faculty-faculty interactions as well. And even if you share a concern with another faculty, there is no responsibility. I mean, other than their own sense of kindness and willing to help, there's really no other external sense of accountability for other faculty members to step in. So I've heard stories where other students have just had a committee of faculty who aren't as supportive and there still isn't a system set up to really enforce good, so-called good behavior or or give consequences to poor behavior. So there, there are options, but the system could be much more improved to hold people accountable. Yeah, I think that's a very good and well put case for checks and balances independently of other faculty members. Because of course, if you're going to another faculty member 
and asking them in some ways to police the behavior of their peer, they're going to be much less likely or willing to, and you're going to be in turn less likely to ask that of them. The story you told just very briefly about you were told this isn't a space for you. I mean, that's sort of unbelievable to hear for the first time. Do you mind talking about the context of that? Right. So I mentioned this really quote of maybe you don't belong in science or you don't belong here. And it isn't necessarily one specific story, but rather something that was, you know, I can remember it was said to me, it was said to people around me, fellow students. It's really a common, common statement that you can't really pinpoint to one story. But I remember definitely I had a past mentor where something he said really stuck with me where it was along the lines of, you know, I don't think, I don't think you have passion for science. I don't think, I don't think you belong here. Maybe weren't his absolute exact words, but basically there were the words of passion and Mm. belonging, which if you were to deconstruct that and passion is, I think a common thing that researchers tend to follow behind and hold on this high pedestal. But what happens is we don't really have a good definition for passion. Or rather, when it comes to people in academia, passion might mean one very specific thing being you have to be in the lab working 24-7. If you stop to sleep, then you're not passionate, which is can be a really toxic definition of passion. Right. It's used in some ways to weaponize, well, actually, you're not working enough, so maybe you're not quote-unquote passionate enough for this gig. Exactly. And when you really deconstruct these words of like of passion and belonging in the context of you're just not working yourself to death, when you, when you hear these words in that context, from an outside perspective, you realize that it's not that I'm not necessarily passionate. It's not that I don't belong here. It's just that this culture's definition of what is belonging and what is passionate is toxic, ultimately. And as a student going through grad school, that is one distinction that took a long time. Because again, these can be well-established professors using these terms passion and belonging and saying, you don't belong here. You're not passionate as a student who is just starting out and trying to get a PhD, you interpret those words as I don't have the skills. Not that, not that I am trying to resist these, this toxic culture, but in the beginning, you really think that you just aren't cut out to be a scientist. And it's really a poor culture that tricks people into thinking they don't belong here especially in the context of inevitably working really hard at the same time. It's not that you were likely missing days and had your feet on the beach, metaphorically. It was probably in the context of working incredibly hard nonetheless, and yet being held up to these standards of, well, these aren't 105-hour weeks, and you're not buying into the culture quite as I've defined it, therefore maybe this isn't quite the space for you. Is that kind of a fair characterization? Exactly. I love how you point out that sometimes it's a situation where you have worked a lot, but for whatever reason, it's not 
a hundred hours or however many a million or so hours that people expect you to work and in that case what you end up doing is also not recognizing the amazing work that you put in and being hard on yourself for not fitting an unrealistic expectation and this is really the type of culture that we see in grad school that just people are not held accountable for yeah it's really interesting for two reasons the first is everyone agrees that there's a certain minimum amount of work you should be putting in it's just that in academia that minimum the perception of that minimum amount of work is unbelievably oppressively and with a toxicity too high and the balancing act and this is an interesting turn into the next thing i'd like to talk about is you have to play this balancing act as a grad student of the work on the one hand and your mental health on the other and when there become clear and unnecessary trade-offs or rather totally necessary given the context of the culture trade-offs between your work and your mental health that's sort of act two of the problem right exactly exactly so you summed it up pretty nicely where it then becomes this issue of if I don't fit into this culture, that means I might have to sacrifice my health. And it becomes this trade-off and this, do I, can I, do I have to choose one over the other, which is ultimately ridiculous <laughs> and why we have to call for change in the culture of academia. So I, I really look forward to talking about how we can balance mental health and can't ultimately can have healthy environments in academia or fix some broken environments in academia so we don't have to have this trade-off or choose one over the other. Yeah, I mean, cultures are obviously, they emerge because of a number of different variables, but one of them is the incentives. So in academia, because of the level of research that you constantly need to churn out or PhD students are asked to churn out and be on top of their work while doing extra stuff, and that's because the professors or graduate mentors themselves are under that kind of pressure. It sounds like in some way, the structure of academia itself lends itself to these unhelpful practices. To what degree is that fair? Yeah, I think you really, you really nailed it there. It does come down to how the incentive structures are laid out. And as you said, a lot of the, the primary incentive is maybe publishing papers and churning the research out, which makes sense that the culture says to work 24 seven because that is the incentive to get the research out and working more gets the research out. There isn't as much incentive for something like mental health awareness or if we're talking about mentorship, incentive for mentors to support students or to get rewarded for being fantastic mentors. So for example, one of the potential fixes or improvements that people have pitched was having more mentorship trainings for PIs. But the issue is that given the incentive structures where it's primarily focused on research output, there really isn't much incentive for PIs to undergo mentorship training when it does take time away from their research. And there isn't necessarily a reward for going to mentorship training other than the, which, the, the personal reward of guiding students, which itself really should be enough. But ultimately when you 
characterize incentives as maybe something that can push forward your professional development or something you can put on a resume. Mentorship trainings, for example, aren't something that are as high currency as something as publication. So the system doesn't reward things that are important. And what it does reward ends up building this culture of consistent work and this trade-off between work and your health. Yeah, that's really well put. I'm not a big fan of kind of regulating without changing incentives, because all you do, as you say, is create workshops that people half-ass and then resent, and nothing actually changes in terms of the student experience. So then we're in this slight catch-22, where actually what we need to address is the structure of what counts as a good career or a good day at work. And you, in some ways, I guess, need to form a currency around student well-being. Um, it's actually not dissimilar, it's a funny analogy to sort of carbon tax, right? You can waggle, wag your finger at different countries and corporations and say, be better for the environment. But behavior changes when it's incentivized or disincentivized in some meaningful way. That, when I frame it like that, sounds to me like a fairly big challenge because all of a sudden it's not just now a case of making individuals within the department better. It's, God, well, these individuals are motivated by X, Y, and Z and having to kind of pivot around X, Y, and Z. I'm now feeling more pessimistic than at the start of this sentence. Can you offer a case for optimism? <laughs> yeah, it, exactly. It is a high level systemic and structural issue. And when we think about issues at that high level, it is challenging. It will take work to have systemic change. So we actually had a great uh, grad chat episode with Dr. Rob Brown, who is a postdoc at UCLA, where we talked about this exact thing about changing these incentive structures. And if if anyone is interested, that's also a great episode to check out about this very topic. But some of the things that we talked about in that episode were things like maybe for things like tenure, consider additional metrics like mentorship ability or how much outreach you've done, where that then creates more currency for these other very important aspects that are not research. And people are really excited to get tenure, right? So incorporating, incorporating these aspects into the tenure process is, has been one idea. Of course, there has been arguments or maybe pushback against that idea because you have people who have these established research records who don't want things to change or people who are already at places of power where if things were to change, they would have to give up some power. So there is pushback to any approach for systemic change because it usually involves someone someone having to give a power for other people to also rise in the ranks. But I do think that a lot more of these discussions are happening, especially now as social media is growing and a lot of these tougher discussions are being put out there via social media and other online resources where they've created communities that talk about tough topics that we otherwise in person was much harder to talk about. So I've connected with so many incredible advocates for this type of change, but it's hard. It is a very large systemic issue to really address and it's hard. Yeah, and in some way, in some meaningful way, 
trying to create high level systemic meaningful change, it being difficult is just part of the bargain, right? As opposed to a reason to be pessimistic. If it were easy, it would have been done. I mean, it's actually not dissimilar to, you know, the quality of teaching as judged by pupils at top Ivy League schools is totally indistinguishable to more, you would imagine, quote unquote, average by traditional metrics, uh, community colleges. And it's all about the individual motivations of the professors, which in turn come about because of the structural incentives. As a slight pivot, but I'm hoping not too much so, I want to ask you about academia and lockdown. Um, there's sort of two questions here, but the first one is sort of very openly, how was it for you? Yeah, we can't ignore that we are in a pandemic right now. <laughs> and I'm sure nobody would have predicted that we would all be quarantined in our homes. And for me, doing a PhD at this point completely remotely, right? And it is a huge adjustment. And everyone has faced different struggles and differences in privilege. So personally, I my work is entirely computational. So I always had the option of working remotely and doing all of my work remotely. So that experience might be different from other researchers, researchers who focus on experimental work and might have to adjust their schedules of how they go in or maybe are restricted by the current COVID guidelines about how often they can access the lab. In my situation, I can work remotely. I've always been able to work remotely. And it's less of a matter of, it's, it's not as much about not having access to, re, to my usual tools, but rather finding the motivation. <laughs> because I don't think humans were meant to be stuck at home 24-7. I mean, the effects of social distancing and not potentially not being able to see friends and family is a lot on our mental health and a lot on our motivation. So I would say the main thing that has been tough for me and for many other people is finding the motivation to work from home, especially given that it's, it's not a choice right now. We're staying home because we wanna stay safe. <laughs> And that makes it very nerve wracking and it's very distracting and it's difficult to focus on work and there should be more compassionate and open dialogue about it. Yeah, it makes you realize how much of human behavior is reliant on immediate contextual stimuli. You know, there's a reason why you go to the library to do some work and lo and behold, you find yourself doing some work as opposed to, in at least in my case, being in my room and kind of finding it difficult to distinguish the space from somewhere I sleep and relax and everything else to, oh, well, it's serious work time now. And that gap, especially if you are used to being sort of in labs, must be incredibly difficult. How has the academic community been about lockdown? Has there been a push towards, let's all be super productive and crack on and what a brilliant time to cram our papers? Or has there been an attitude of, well, this is a time that we're all gonna have to get through collectively because it's really difficult and research has made that much harder. Yeah, so I would say it's very lab specific what the mm -hmm. COVID response has been. So I personally am very thankful to be in a supportive environment where people check in on each other's well-being and it's not too much of this toxic 
work 24 seven mentality that we talked about in the beginning. But again, it's very lab specific where I've heard stories of people feeling pressure to get work done, even if they're not necessarily comfortable going into work because of the pandemic. And they have advisors who are not understanding of different circumstances. And so I think it really depends on the local environment that you're in. And unfortunately, there isn't this blanket, everybody is supportive of each other, just try to take care of yourself. Ideally, this is, this is the I- ideal attitude we would want, right? This we are in a tough time, let's all support each other. But given the systemic issues that we've talked about in the beginning, there have been stories of advisors pressuring people to get to work if they're not comfortable or giving people hard time for not being as productive, even though these are very not normal times and that lack of motivation is completely understandable. Right. So it it goes back to the system not holding people accountable for for being not as kind. But again, it depends on your local environment. There are still amazing people in academia who want to push for change, who are supporting new researchers and telling people they belong here. And I've connected with so many great people. Unfortunately, there are still some toxic environments out there. And the goal really is to make it so that all environments are going to be this compassionate. You've spoken about how lockdown has been viewed in some quarters, amongst those perhaps who are beneficiaries of this ingrained structural privilege, as something of a chance to relax, develop hobbies, etc. And that that view of lockdown, or that at least the public expression of that view of lockdown, is exclusionary. Can you explain a little bit about the role of privilege here as you see it? Yeah, so I remember the inspiration for this tweet that put out that basically what happened was that it was a virtual event where the icebreaker for the event was, what hobbies have you picked up during quarantine? And we all went around our Zoom screens and everyone was saying, oh, so I picked up reading, I guess, (laughs) or I picked up playing this new game, etc. But you could kind of feel the uncomfort as people were going around, maybe trying to scramble together something to say. And I'm not saying that's everybody. Some people genuinely have had time this and the opportunity, this quarantine to pick up a hobby. But people are struggling with so many different things right now and differences in privilege. For example, if you have someone you know is sick, and you have to go through how to support this person, the emotional toll of struggling with the pandemic firsthand. I mean, other things could be financial hardship or familial responsibilities given this time of lockdown. There is an endless list of struggles that would take time away from being able to develop a hobby. And a question like, oh, what hobbies have you developed during quarantine? What that implies is that maybe people aren't struggling or is really a appropriate question for people who aren't struggling, which isn't 
which isn't the case, right? Everyone has a different situation. And I think it is such an assumption to think that people have time to develop a hobby. It's insensitive to think that that these are normal times and we can go on as if it's our normal day-to-day. And it's a privilege to be able to have time to start a hobby. As something of a diversion, I'm interested in your take on whether one part of what's been revealed by coronavirus is the existence of a quote-unquote anti-science bias in America. Yeah, I think it, I think it comes down a lot to how can scientists communicate to a broader audience and really connecting the two communities of scientists and also the broader audience of people who may not be in the field. And it's really highlighted some of these communication gaps. So for example, I think in the in broader audiences and people outside of science, people really want to know exactly what's happening like every every detail whereas in science what you get is like a puzzle piece one at a time you might get this this corner piece and during this experiment another corner piece during this other experiment you don't really know how they work together until you do a lot of research and you're able to put together a full picture right and I think oftentimes broader audiences just want to know what the full picture is It, it comes down to this gap in communication between scientists and just broader audiences who aren't as familiar with how science is done and how can we bridge that gap and better communicate the scientific process where we're at to alleviate some of this anti-science skepticism. Right, because it turns out that science is a more mod or rather scientific progress is a more marginal game than most people realize. It's not paradigm shifting breakthroughs. For the most part, it's marginal incidental finding, marginal incidental finding. And it's a whole nother game altogether to put that together in a way that can then A, work and then B, be communicated to the public. Before I let you go, I was wondering if you could give any advice to people just starting out on their PhD journey. If you could sort of say two or three things to your former self, what would they be? Yeah, I've learned a lot since going through five years of grad school. Now, and I would say, one, recognize the systemic issues that we talked about in this, in the beginning of this episode as what they are and not a reflection of you and show some kindness to yourself, even when other students or advisors may not be as supportive as they can be. It's not a reflection of you, but rather the system that doesn't hold people accountable and doesn't reward people for good mentorship or being supportive advisors and just remove the blame from yourself to acknowledging that it is the system that is at fault. And then two, there are incredible people in academia and it's super important to just identify your community and support network. and. We talked a lot about some of the unhappy stories of academia, but there are fantastic professors out there who want you to succeed that if you were to join their lab, they will be on board with your goals. So it comes down to finding a group that works with what you're looking for, hopefully supports your well-being and finding a community in academia that does that for you, that they 
are out there. And despite the fact that there are systemic issues, science is still a really exciting place to be with great people. And it's important to be informed of what the systemic issues are, but at the same time, realize that there are incredible people out there to support you and you just have to find them. Aileen, thank you so much for coming on. Um, all of Faye's work will be linked in the description uh, wherever you're picking this up. And thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you next week.